You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. I'm going to invite you back to your pews. Thanks for greeting one another, whether in the room or on the live stream. We're glad that you're here. Uh, My name is Jeremy Edelman. I'm the senior pastor here at River City Church, and uh, it's really a privilege to gather with you all this morning. Uh, We exist as a church. This is our mission statement. This is why we exist, why we gather. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. That's, that's our whole purpose. That's why we're here. That's, that's why we gather. We want to see lives renewed in relationship with Jesus. And that weariness really can come from a lot of different places. And each week, I help us to think about where that weariness might have come from, whether it's busyness or whether it's our brokenness or whether it's idolatry and sin. But uh, one of the things for some of you each week, um, even as I keep reminding you of it, for some of you, it doesn't take long it doesn't take much reminding to feel that weariness. For others of you, it might take more convincing. Because for some people, you feel like you have all your finances figured out, you have a good job, you're a moral person, you're well-respected by others. But here's what I know also from this life. Trying to maintain that level of perfection all the time also begins to wear on you. Denying the pressure that you feel in life at times, hiding from the exhaustion it can become a weight around our necks, and it starts to drag us down. And so in response to our weariness, even the weariness that is brought on from trying to pretend that we're not weary, even that weariness, Jesus, he invites us to come and find our rest in him. We believe that lives are renewed in relationship with Jesus, and that's what we want you to know about us. More than anything else this morning, what I want you to hear is that we believe lives are renewed in relationship with with Jesus, the one who died for us, even in our brokenness, and the one who invites us to come and find rest and refreshment in Him. And so let me offer you this welcome in the name of Jesus this morning. To all here who feel weary and are in need of rest, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength to all who sin and need a Savior, and to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And for anyone else who will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. And now if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 37. We'll go all the way through chapter 22, verse 22. And uh, if you're using a pew Bible, that's found on page 931, so feel free to grab one of those pew Bibles, 931 is where we'll be. We're going to continue in our series in Acts this morning. We're nearing the end of the book. Uh, Last week, Paul, who's the main character here at the second half of the book of Acts, he gets arrested because of a conflict that happens in the temple, 
And what we read is that he's really, he's innocent of the accusations, but this mob is enraged. And so one of the leading officials here in Jerusalem, one of these Roman officials comes and actually arrests Paul. I think as much to save Paul from the mob as anything, he arrests Paul. And uh, because the crowds are so violent, the soldiers actually had to pick him up and carry him up the steps into the barracks. And so in our passage today, what we're going to see is that Paul, he turns around, he actually gives a speech to these crowds. And so we're going to look at the speech this morning. And in this speech, he not only puts on a clinic for us and how to engage with people that disagree with us, but he also gives us a framework for how we should see the world. In our passage, we're going to see how we can put on a lens of the gospel and through that lens, see the world and our own lives far more clearly. And so, let's read together in Acts 21, beginning in verse 37. And if you would, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Again, beginning in verse 37 of chapter 21, it says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet and said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me, or now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by, my side, by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. 
And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw Him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. As we open your Bible, would you help us? Would you give us help by your Spirit that you would open our eyes so we can behold the wondrous things in your Word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a well-known saying which goes, All roads lead to Rome. And this saying developed because of the long and the enduring influence of the Roman Empire. Beginning about 300 BC, Rome started to build this intricate web of roads, all of them leading back to Rome. It's one of the reasons that they were so powerful for so long. And their road system included 29 major roads, they're almost like highways. And it connected all 113 provinces, or provinces within the empire. And it was true that if you were anywhere in Europe or Near East or Northern Africa, you could find a road that would get you to Rome. And more recently, you'll see here on the screen, Movel Lab from Stuttgart, Germany, they set out to see if this phrase was actually true. And what they found is that the ancient influence of Rome is still seen in the roadways today around Europe and the Near East. And you'll see the way that all these roads, like expanding arteries, will find their way back to Rome. What I want us to see today is that in a similar way to all roads leading to Rome, God designed history so that all stories, so that all of life will eventually lead to Jesus. And if you track the themes of the Old Testament, they will all eventually find their culmination in Jesus. If you begin to pull on the thread of history, any thread of history, it will eventually lead you to Jesus. If you start to dig into some of the key patterns and questions of your own life, when you get to the bottom of them, their answers will be most fully found in Jesus. And my hope today is that a result, as a result of our time in the Word, that you will begin to see your story in a different way, in a new light, that you'll see the story of the world through new lenses. And I've been praying for this sermon. As I've prayed, I've prayed that it would, it would truly change your life because it will forever change the way that you see the world. If you start to see Jesus as the focal point of all of history, if you start to see your life in light of Him, it will forever change the way that you live. Now, I mentioned our mission statement earlier that we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. And we, we didn't just come up with that so that it could be catchy or creative, but because we actually believe that the solution to the world's weariness is relationship with Jesus. 
The peace and the purpose that our world is craving for is only found in one place. People all around us are searching for meaning. We are searching for meaning. We'll look for it in all sorts of places, in all sorts of ways, and it is our deep conviction here at River City Church that it is found only in Jesus. All roads may lead to Rome, but all of our lives and our stories lead to Jesus. And so here's the primary message of the sermon this morning. This is what I want us to see from our text. It all leads to Jesus. So learn to see your life in light of Him. Let me say that again. It all leads to Jesus. So learn to see your life in light of Him. Now, the reason I believe that that's the primary message of our sermon is because that is how Paul saw his life. In our text, Paul, he's given this speech on the stairs of a barracks in Jerusalem. And what we see in his speech is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God's people had been longing for. Paul does not see Jesus as someone who came in opposition to what the Jews had taught and believed, but as a fulfillment of all that God had done and was doing through this people. This is seen most clearly in verse 14 of chapter 22 in our passage. When uh, he's speaking of Ananias, comes to him and says, "'The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will.'" to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. In this verse, Ananias, he is speaking to Paul, and he's saying, the God of our fathers, which means that the God whom Ananias is talking about is the same God that Paul grew up worshiping. It's the same God God that their fathers had worshiped. It's the same God that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had worshiped. It's the same God that these rowdy Jews standing in front of him at the barracks also claimed to worship. And then Ananias calls Jesus the righteous one, which is language from the Old Testament about the Messiah, the Christ, the one to whom God's people had been waiting for. This is Jesus. He is that righteous one, that anointed one. He's the one whom all of Israel was looking for. All roads of the Old Testament lead to Jesus, and all that has happened is being fulfilled in this righteous one who has come. Paul saw all of history, all of his own life, finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That's how Paul saw the world, and it is how God is calling us to see the world as well. And so the outline of our sermon this morning, we're going to focus on four different aspects of Paul's speech. First, connection. Second, courage. Third, conversion. And fourth, Christ. Connection, courage, conversion, Christ. And so, First, connection. Paul, he's very thoughtful in the way that he goes about this speech so that he can connect with those who are there. He wants to connect with his audience. So he goes about this in several different ways. Uh, My undergraduate degree was in speech communication, and one of the basic rules of public speaking is to establish credibility with your audience. You can establish or you can accomplish that in several different ways. And even though this crowd was just about to beat Paul to death, He has the presence of mind to connect with them and to establish credibility. He does that in verse 37. Or, sorry, he does that in the first words of his speech when he uses the words brothers and fathers. He's connecting with people immediately when he begins. Prior to that, in verse 37, he asks the tribune if he can say something. And the tribune's actually surprised that Paul speaks Greek so well, and he assumes that Paul must be this Egyptian who had recently started a revolt. And Paul explains that, no, I'm a Jew, and I'm born in Tarsus, in this, great known, this well-known city, because there's this great university there. And the tribune gives him permission to speak, but he changes the language he's used, and he addresses them in Hebrew. 
says in verse 2 that when he addressed them in Hebrew, the, whole, the crowds grew quiet. And the first words, again, are brothers and fathers. In this way, he's taking this figurative step toward his audience. This is a really very respectful way of addressing those who are there. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't call them crazy. He might have wanted to. I mean, they had almost just beat him to death. I'm sure that his heart was pumping and his blood was pulsing through his veins. The fight or flight mechanism in his amygdala must have been screaming for him to react. But somehow, in a truly remarkable display, Paul has a presence of mind. He has the peace of his spirit to calm his body in a way that not even James Nectar can rival through his breathing techniques. The verb here used in verse 40 is important. It's translated as addressed in the ESV. He addresses the crowd. Other English translations are words like said or spoke. He doesn't yell at them. He speaks with them. He goes on to explain in verses 3 and 4 that he is a Jew. He's born in Tarsus. He's raised in Jerusalem. He's educated by Gamaliel, a well-known and leading Jewish teacher. He explains that he was zealous for God just as they are at this very moment. And he even goes on to say that his zeal was put into action. He not only was zealous for the way of God, but he persecuted the way, which is a title for those who follow Jesus, this Jesus movement. He persecuted them. He's saying, I I put my zealous heart on the line. The high priest and the council, they can actually give testimony to my actions. He's saying, they gave me letters to go to Damascus and to persecute people there as well. But on the way, he's blinded, and God alters his future. Paul does many other things to connect with the crowds. Many of them are really very subtle, but one more that I'll point out. In verses 12 and 16, when he tells about this commission that he gets from God through Ananias, he leaves leaves some parts out. If you go back into Acts 9, you can actually read about this same story when the events first took place. And what you'll see is that some of the details there, Paul now omits. And he didn't do that in order to deceive people. At no point does Paul lie. He simply edited the retelling of the story in order to leave out the parts that would have been unnecessarily distracting for this crowd. And instead, in verse 12, he emphasized that Ananias was a man who was devout according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews in Damascus. And throughout this interaction with Paul and the crowds, he connects with them in several ways, we'll see. The first is that he uses their language. He speaks in Hebrew. Paul knew Greek exceptionally well, well enough that the tribune thought that he might be an Egyptian cult leader. And as I said, he, he's, he's so well-versed in Greek, he, he's probably using it for the last several years in all of his missionary journeys, but here he shifts to Hebrew. He knew to adjust his speech to connect with the crowds. And beyond just Speaking in Hebrew, he addresses them with a calm demeanor and respectful titles. He shows how similar he is to them. He was raised in this city of Jerusalem. He was educated by the best Jews around. He was zealous for the law, just as they are today. He shows that he understands them, not just in a superficial way. He really does get their perspective because it was his own perspective at one point in time. And he leaves out unnecessary barriers. Now, that doesn't mean that he did not have the courage to include the necessary ones, but that Paul was wise enough to know the difference. If the crowds were going to be offended, then Paul wanted to ensure that it was because of the true gospel message, not because Paul irritated them unnecessarily. And this brings us then to the second aspect of Paul's speech, which is courage. 
Paul went out of his way to connect with them, but that doesn't mean he didn't also have the courage to offend them if necessary. At the end of the speech, Paul gets interrupted because he had offended the crowd so greatly. In verse 22, it says that up to this word, they had listened to him. This is the last verse we read, but then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They were so frustrated with him, they wanted him dead. But what had Paul said that so deeply offended them? It really centered around two things. First, he identified Jesus as the Messiah. And second, he told them that God had sent him as a messenger to the Gentiles. The crowds tolerated the first thing. They erupted at the second. After connecting with the crowds, he tells them about the supernatural experience he had on the road to Damascus in verses 6 through 11. He's blinded by the light at midday, it says at noon, which means that the light was so bright it outshone the sun when it was at its brightest. And the risen Jesus addressed Paul there on the road. He identifies himself with the people that Paul is persecuting. You see, for Jesus, persecuting his church is like persecuting him. And Paul was so blinded by this light that he actually needed help to get to Damascus. And then in verses 12 through 16, we read about this interaction with Ananias. A devout Jew who is also a follower of Jesus is used by God to commission Paul. In Ananias's interaction with Paul, Jesus is referred to the righteous one, which we talked about a little bit earlier. It's a title for the Messiah. And here is the first potentially offensive thing that Paul says. It's important because throughout the Old Testament, there's this developing theology around the Messiah, the Christ who is to come. And one of the titles for the Messiah was the righteous one. And so in one sentence, Ananias says something extremely important about the identity of Jesus. He is the one through whom God's plan to redeem the world has been fulfilled. Like all roads leading to Rome, Paul is saying that the proverbial roads of the Old Testament have led to Jesus. But that isn't the most offensive thing to the crowds. That isn't what creates the eruption. Paul continues to speak. He goes on to tell a story about a time he's praying in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the first time we've read about this interaction, this time that Paul's praying in Jerusalem. It's not recorded in Acts 9 when his conversion story is recorded. So, but what we see happen is he's at the temple in Jerusalem. He's praying in verse 17, and he falls into a trance. And many commentators believe that Paul is telling this story. He's bringing this up because he wants to show the crowds that he goes to the temple to pray. He values that because they just got mad at him because they thought he was defiling the temple. And he's saying, no, I, that's not who I am. That's not how we behave in the temple. I pray in the temple. But here it is in the temple that the Lord tells Paul to get out of Jerusalem, saying that they would not accept his testimony there. And Paul, he's protesting in his interaction with the Lord, saying that surely they'll know how zealous I was for the law. I even oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Won't that be enough for them to believe that my conversion is authentic? Shouldn't they listen to this testimony? But God reiterates his call for Paul to bring the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. God had promised long ago that through the family of Abraham, he was going to bless the nations. And now, as a descendant of Abraham, Jesus had come to be that blessing. Paul was going to be the messenger of this good news. However, this causes the uproar. The crowd screamed in verse 22, away with him. He doesn't even deserve to live. 
See, Paul's association with the Gentiles was at the core of this conflict. It had already been a source of anger for the crowds. Last week, we saw that he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was forbidden and punishable by death. Further, Paul had brought financial gifts from all these Gentile churches in order to bless the church in Jerusalem. It would have already been remarkably humbling for the Jews to see their kinsmen being served through the gifts of Gentiles. Paul, he was a conduit of God breaking down ethnic barriers that had previously been erected. Through the blood of Jesus, God was tearing down walls that had divided Jews and Gentiles. And at the mention of God's commission for Paul to be a messenger to the Gentiles, all of the kind of emotion that had been dammed up throughout this speech just broke through. And on the one hand, Paul went out of his way to connect with his audience. But on the other hand, he was courageous enough to communicate truthfully, even if it would lead to their anger. And as Christians, we must learn to also walk this fine balance between connection and courageous confrontation. We will connect with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers in all sorts of ways. Like Paul, we'll learn to speak their language. And for most of you, that won't mean that you need to learn another language entirely, but it will mean that you will need to learn how to speak to your neighbors in ways that connect with their heart. Learning how to speak in ways that are culturally aware, taking the time to understand the values and the assumptions of this cultural moment we live in. See, the language that we use matters. It will help you connect with someone, or it can just as easily drive a relational wedge between you and someone else. One example of this, one way we see the power of language is in the strong enforcement of politically correct language. Whether it's against Mr. Potato Head, Dr. Seuss books, or professional sports teams, we've seen the powerful force of cancel culture. There are watchdogs everywhere looking for those who will step out of line of the approved, culturally appropriate language that can be used. And that's not to dismiss being thoughtful and sensitive in the way we speak, but even though most Americans now believe political correctness has been weaponized by an elite few, it points to the power of language. Like Paul, we should be careful about the words that we choose to use, not as a capitulation, but as a way of connection. We should be aware of how to speak in this cultural moment. Take the time to study the values, the language, the desires of those around, us, around you, around us. Find ways to connect with them. But our desire to connect should never lead us to compromise the message of the gospel. It will take courage to say something that we know will offend others or could offend them. Whether small or large, we cannot compromise the gospel on the altar of being liked by our friends and our neighbors. And I think one simple way to do this is what Timothy Keller has called relational integrity. Relational integrity means that you bring your genuine and honest self to your relationships. And as a Christian who claims that Jesus is our Savior and Lord in the all roads lead to Rome paradigm, we would say that our lives find their fulfillment in Jesus, and yet so many Christians have people all around them who don't even know that they worship Jesus. For most of you, one step of courage that you can take will just to begin to live with relational integrity, to bring your entire self to your relationships and for a Christian, that must include your worship of Jesus. Because if you say that Jesus is Lord of your life, but you never talk about Him with your coworkers or your neighbors, then you're not living an authentic and integrated life. 
Keller's contention is that if more evangelical Christians were willing to take this step of courage, our collective witness would improve. And in his book, Center Church, he makes this enlightening comparison. He explains that 40 years ago, most people knew someone who was gay, but they just didn't know that they knew someone who was gay. And because it was culturally difficult for a gay person to be open about their same-sex attraction, as a result, it was easier to rely on stereotypes. Because the most public and vocal gays may not have been the best representation of the gay community as a whole. Today, things have changed. Most young people know at least one gay person who's open and honest about their attraction. And so it's more difficult to default to stereotypes. However, evangelical Christians have now gone underground with their faith. They have lacked the courage to have relational integrity with their faith. And as a result, most people know an evangelical Christian. They just don't know that they know an evangelical Christian. And then they default to stereotypes. And stereotypes are built on the most extreme and vocal individuals who are not always a great representation of evangelicals as a whole. When your friends and your neighbors know that you worship Jesus, then you'll become the person that they think of when they hear about Christians, rather than only thinking about the extreme examples of evangelicals that they read about in the news. And so, like Paul, we want to both connect with our neighbors and friends and have the courage to be honest about our faith. We want to live with relational integrity. If we did, our collective witness for Jesus would grow. It would improve. And the third aspect of Paul's speech is conversion. He tells his conversion story. A really important part of Paul's defense to the Jews is his own conversion story. This is the third time in the book of Acts that we will read about the events on the road to Damascus. Luke felt like, Luke, the author of Acts, felt like it was important enough to tell it three times. As Paul is speaking to the Jews, he explains who he was before meeting Jesus on the road. He was strict in the manner of the law. He was moral and self-righteous. He was zealous for God. He, was, he persecuted Christians, but God intervened, blinding Paul on the road and confronting him for his idolatry and sin. Paul further seals this conversion than through his baptism in verse 16. His baptism is a picture of how Jesus washed away his sins. As Paul would later write in Romans 6, in our baptisms, we descend into the water. We give a picture of the death that we have died in Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, as we rise out of the water, we give image to the new life that we have in him. Paul met Jesus on a road and his life was forever changed. No longer is Paul going to depend on his own righteousness, but he re relies now on the record of Christ on his behalf. No longer is Paul going to persecute Christians. He's going to bring the message about Jesus to Gentiles throughout the known world. And there are two features to this conversion story that are really important for us to recognize. First, it's really difficult for the Jews to dismiss this story. This was Paul's own experience. He witnessed something on the road to Damascus. There are others there to corroborate that story. Further, he had made such a dramatic change in his life. He went from being a persecutor of Christians to joining them and becoming their most vocal messenger. How are the Jews going to argue with that? Even if they don't want to accept the message about Jesus, they had to at least acknowledge that Paul had changed, that Paul attributed this dramatic change to his own conversion. The second feature of his story is that Paul told his conversion story with Jesus as the hero. 
Paul did not study all the evidence and then come to his own conclusion. He did not develop a heavy conscience about all the persecuting he was doing and then decide that he was going to stop. He did not decide that it was cool now to be a Christian, so he's going to join the movement. Paul is not the hero of his own conversion story. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one who interrupts Paul's journey to Damascus. It is Jesus that confronts Paul for his sinful persecution of Christians, and it is Jesus who offers Paul his own righteousness. The hero of Paul's conversion story is Jesus. And like Paul, we all need to learn how to tell our story with Jesus as the hero. And I don't just mean that as a strategy for evangelism, but we should know how to tell our story with Jesus as the hero because we learn to actually see that Jesus is the hero of our story. It all leads to Jesus, so we learn to live and to see our life in light of Him. In my experience, too many people who claim to be Christians tell their testimony with themselves as the hero. Sure, Jesus gets a mention at some point in their story, but He's more like a footnote. And let me just say something. I I want it to be perfectly clear that it is not the testimony of someone who follows Jesus if Jesus is just a footnote. In our testimony of conversion, He is the focal point. He is where the conversion happens. He's the reason that we can have new life at all. If you think about your own testimony of faith and Jesus is just a little footnote, then I am deeply concerned for the condition of your soul. And I want to help you learn to see Jesus as the hero of your own story and ultimately of the story of the entire world. Learn to tell your story with Jesus at the center. And you can even do this in 15 seconds or less. Paul might have said it this way. I was once a self-righteous persecutor of Christians, but then Jesus interrupted my life on a road to Damascus, and he became my Savior and Lord. Now I'm learning to be humble and share Jesus freely with all who will hear. Here's how I would share my 15-second testimony in just 45 words. Growing up, I hid my imperfections and found my worth in the approval of others. But then I met Jesus, and He became my Savior and my friend. And now I'm learning to be secure in His love and to be honest about my shortcomings. Your conversion story is important because it is the testimony of how God interrupted your life through Jesus, how He called you to be His own through the blood and the sacrifice of our Savior. And no one could dismiss the reality of that story in your life. The fourth and final aspect of Paul's speech is Christ Himself. Paul had come to see the way that all roads of the Old Testament found their fulfillment in Jesus. The Messiah had come, and God was fulfilling all of His promises in Christ. Paul began to see the way that the highway of the temple was eventually fulfilled in Jesus and the church that he started with his blood. Because no longer was God's presence mediated through a single temple in Jerusalem, but through Jesus, his church became the mediated presence of God on earth. Paul started to see how the sacrificial system found its fulfillment in Jesus. No longer did people need to make continual sacrifices to atone for their sin. Jesus had made a single and entirely sufficient sacrifice to pay for their sin. Paul saw how the highway of the family of Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. No longer did the ethnic and cultural boundaries of the Jewish people dictate who was in God's family, but through Jesus, born from the bloodline of Abraham, God was inviting all people to become part of God's family through Christ. Paul saw 
how the theme of God's justice and shalom was finding its fulfillment in Jesus. No longer would the poor and the outcast be second-class citizens, but Jesus took the injustice upon Himself so that He would create a new way of being human that would bring God's shalom peace to this world. Paul saw that highway after highway themes and threads from the Old Testament finding their fulfillment in Jesus. In Paul's mind, he had this mental map of all these roads leading to Jesus, like the map of all the roads leading to Rome. Paul saw how it all led to Jesus. And this is where the conflict with the crowds came. They had missed the Messiah. Their own mental map was out of alignment with God's. They missed the Christ that they were waiting to see. And as a result, they didn't hear Paul's message about Jesus as a fulfillment of their own identity and faith. They heard Paul's message in competition to their identity and faith. Rather than seeing that Paul was making sense of their entire religion through Jesus, they thought Paul was erasing their map and having them start over. It'd be like erasing all the roads and just giving them a map of Rome. They're saying, what happened to all the roads? But in the end, they missed it. They missed the Jesus whom their entire religion pointed to. And it would be easy to condemn them as fools, but it is just as easy even today to spend all your time around religion and miss Jesus. Growing up, I knew someone in my hometown who was very involved in their church. They served in leadership roles. They were there every Sunday. They knew all the guidelines and how to follow them. They were an expert in the man-made rules of religion. But along the way, they entirely missed Jesus. And it was evident in particular in this conversation I had with them. When I was speaking with them about the gospel, they dismissed the Savior because the Jesus of the Bible didn't line up with their rules that they had learned to follow. And this can happen in any Christian tradition, whether it is Lutheran or Pentecostal or Catholic and, yes, even Baptists. I read a story this week about a Baptist church filled with people who knew all the right cultural rules, but almost all of them had missed Jesus. Today, whether you have been in church your whole life or this is the first time you've crossed through the threshold of a church door, my appeal to you is do not miss Jesus. My hope and my prayer is that you learn to see your entire life being fulfilled in Him. And now each week we gather around the table of our Lord, and that's what we're going to do right now. And when we do that, we remind ourselves that it all points to Jesus. God has given us a physical reminder in the bread and the cup that Jesus is the Savior. He is the hero. He is the one in whom our entire lives find their fulfillment. And so, as we hold the bread in a moment and place it into our mouths, be reminded of the broken body of Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.